patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicated to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everybody and welcome to episode 67 of friends and fellow citizens i'm your host sherman talowski thank you so much for joining me this week's episode is another of our sacred honor series episodes and this week we'll be talking about robert treat Payne, the next member of the massachusetts delegation that signed the declaration of independence As a quick reminder, if you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button, or better yet, subscribe to our email list. Go to shermantyloski.com. The link is down in the show notes below. So after you listen to this episode, make sure to check that out and to sign up for our email list for the latest news, announcements, uh, special promotions, uh, episode notifications, and all the rest via your inbox. Make sure to check that out at the end of this program. Today's focus is on a man whom, to be honest, I never, ever heard of until I started this episode, or started the research of this episode. I think it's often because the Massachusetts delegation has a couple of big heroes already. We've already covered Samuel Adams and his cousin John Adams. And the next guy to sign the Declaration of Independence is... Again, someone whom I never heard of before, maybe some of you have, uh, but he is a very interesting character, um, and I I wish that you know, we had a lot more time in our episodes to cover all aspects of every single one of these signers, but some of them, as you all know, perhaps from our previous episode with John Adams and with Samuel Adams, these two just just did way too much for me to put in about a 30 to 45 minute solo episode. Robert Tree Payne, I'll give you a bit of background here. So he was born in 1731 in Boston. And he had a bit of a kind of a merchant background. His his dad was a merchant. Uh, he had been involved in preaching. Um, he was very, very religious. And uh, his main focuses, I think, are going to be interesting for us to look at. Last episode, for those of you who listened to the John Adams episode, we covered a little bit about the Boston Massacre. And I'll get to that in just a little bit. But that becomes not only another important element to Robert Treat Payne's life, uh, but it's also kind of came as a shocker for me. Now, R- Robert Treat Payne was someone who was very dedicated to the law. He eventually passed the bar. Um, He started uh, practicing law. Um, He had connections. He had connections with James Otis, who was a prominent politician at the time in Massachusetts. Uh, But he he really first got involved in politics when the Stamp Act came about. And really, a lot of the founders, and and specifically the signers, uh, started their work because of the Stamp Act of 1765. 
As a quick recap, the Stamp Act basically was a tax on stamps, and while as might seem obvious, it was really the stamps on things like you know stationery, even playing cards. You you have to have a stamp, and you got to pay for it. That was one of the first big pieces of legislation that the British passed. Alongside others, there was the Sugar Act and the Tea Act. That, that all kind of was even before, either before or after the Stamp Act. But this was a very very unpopular tax. Uh, lots of protests, riots, as you can imagine. Uh, and Robert Tree Payne was getting very concerned about the British justification for something like this. And it really feeds into the larger idea of why the American Revolution was so revolutionary and why the arguments for the patriot cause were going to be so dominant, not just within that era, but even to today's politics. When we think about the debate between the, the about the size of government or what the role of government is, a lot of this really originated from that time. And I don't think there really is another country out in the world that has that same sort of dynamic of understanding the role of government and, and always being active in figuring out what that role is because it's never going to be static. Honestly, Robert Treatment wasn't even really thinking about how you know taxes were going to be collected and everything, but he, one thing he was very, very sure about was that he was very skeptical of the power of parliament to tax the colonies in such a manner, especially since the colonies didn't have any kind of representation. Now, it's important to know that this was not an independence movement that Robert Tree Payne was advocating for. I would say that given the episodes that we've covered and some of the things that I've read about the signers, it's a comfortable way to say that for most of the signers, this was not an independence movement, but rather a colonial rights movement in the 1760s. It wasn't until as you got closer towards 1776 didn't this idea of independence really start coming into play. And Payne was certainly one of those guys who was very concerned about the, the rights of the colonies, but he was not on board with some kind of separation and certainly not of any kind of conflict. In fact, he was one of those signers that signed onto things like the Olive Ranch Petition in 1775, which was kind of that last resort of trying to plead with George III to not engage in any further conflict. And we all kind of know how, how well that went or how bad it went. But then came that tragic day, March 5th, 1770, when colonists started pelting British soldiers and British soldiers firing on their own people. We all know it as the Boston Massacre nowadays. And this became a very, very sensitive time. I touched upon this a little bit in the last episode about John Adams, but tensions were just boiling. People wanted to just get out and and fight someone, you know? Like it was it was just that bad. It, it could have been such a big tipping point. I would argue that the, the American Revolution would have started earlier. The fighting definitely would have started earlier had it not been for some key people who kept it at the very minimum skirmishes or just, you know, angry words being trade at each other, but maybe no lives lost. 
And I would argue, given what I've read about Robert Tree Payne, I'd say that he was one of those people who kept it from becoming even worse than it already had been. The reason why I say that is because I mentioned last time that John Adams represented the British soldiers at the trial. Well, guess who was at the other side of that trial in favor of the colonists? It was Robert Treat Payne. One day, I'm sitting doing my research on John Adams, and I was like, you know, I was wondering, I never just never caught the name of whoever was representing the other side. And I'm not even joking. Like You read a lot about the name Adams, but you don't read a whole lot about the other side, which you might think would get a, a bit more traction since that was the, the colonists' side arguing that the British soldiers were, in fact, massacring them on purpose. But uh, I was doing my research on, 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 on the man today, and I realized... Wait, him? Like he he was the one all along. Like it's just it was just su- such a surprise for me. But yes, indeed it was this man, Mr. Payne. And Robert Tree Payne, even though he lost this historic trial, he really brought a name for himself. And while there's not that many documents there where I can read to you, and besides it would take a long time anyway, uh, while there aren't as many documents to fitly describe exactly what he said, but the reaction, especially given the, the letters that he received from some of his colleagues, even people who were you know, affiliated with the Sons of Liberty and absolutely hated the British with, with all their guts, um, they even said that the way he con- Payne conducted himself was professional and courteous. Again, it was very, very contentious. Don't get me wrong. I mean, this is this is about one of the the biggest tragedies to occur on the colony's territory. Not to mention that there was quite a bit of misinformation, and I, I am kind of pointing to R- R- Paul Revere's diagram or drawing of this, which was not accurate at all, and and not to mention the fact he wasn't even there. It was such a contentious time, but Payne was able to control himself. Even though, if you look at the results, with the British commander, Captain Thomas Preston, and six soldiers all acquitted, only two soldiers found guilty of manslaughter, punished, and then were released, it was still a very big victory, not just for Payne, but for Adams and for the independence movement. Let's just imagine for a second, if you're in that crowd in Boston and you hear about the tragic news of hearing the deaths of some of your fellow countrymen, and not to mention the fact that people were already having so much mistrust, already having that hatred, but also that a feeling of not wanting to be the first one to start the violence. What do you do? You, know, you, can't, you can rally around. You can be sons of liberty. You could be a flat-out loyalist. But how do you make it so that if you are on the colony side, you, know, you want to portray your movement as the good movement that supports 
representation supports democracy and all the rest. But you don't want to be the one you know starting fires and you know burn you know taking ships or or you know targeting feathering uh, <laughs> British officials, right? How do you how would you do that? On the other hand, if you were a loyalist and you wanted what's best for the United Kingdom, um, how do you? make your case so that you don't anger the other side, but you also want to suppress dissent and that you want to just do your, do things your way because you're originally where you're loyal to the crown. It's, it was such a, a difficult time. And this, this idea of both sides getting to so close to that point of starting violence I don't think that can be underestimated with this trial. And I think I had to rely on John Adams and Robert Tree Payne and their sides to be able to settle this, at least to prolong the conflict. Even though we all know what happened after the trial and subsequently throughout the years, but it's just a good question to reflect on as we think about Robert Tree Payne and the accomplishments that he had for the revolutionary movement. Now, over the years, Payne would be very much within that group of political leaders in the movement. He would ultimately serve in the provincial assembly. He would uh, represent Taunton, Massachusetts, which is a very, very old settlement uh, obviously still in existence today. He founded, I believe, in the 1600s. It's just a very, very old place, but he decided to do a lot of work on advocating for those colonial rights, as I mentioned earlier. And he was really starting to float this idea around of, well, how is all this going to unfold? And I, I want to say that this is a, really a time for him to not only be active on colonial rights, but he, he also did a lot of the, what I call heavy work of serving in the Continental Congress. And, and this is a side of the signers that we don't often hear about. You know, we often, we do hear about the important arguments for freedom and for uh, the civil rights and all the rest and all the other elements of democracy that we hold so dear. But the other aspect too is also the logistics side. With the Continental Congress, you're putting together militias. You're putting together people who don't have really much military training, if any, at all. Not and not to mention the fact that you have a bunch of loyalists out there who could you know, really uh, threaten your livelihood. Uh, they had to come up with finances. They had to come up with appropriations. And uh, Robert Payne was in charge of something like gunpowder and the ammunition, figuring out ways where the militias can obtain ammunition, figuring out uh, how to manufacture them or how to you know, sneak sneak out and seize some. You know that that's that's probably always quite a daring mission there. And he and this he really just played a huge role in the logistical side of what I call the logistical side of the Continental Congress. As I mentioned before, Payne was not on board with that complete separation from England. But over the course of time, even after the battles of Lexington and Concord, which happened even before the declaration was signed, 
he was still hopeful that a united colonial leadership could force the British hand and start a negotiation process. But after that olive branch petition, I want to just mention earlier about that last plea, which was very much in just an epic fail, he really knew that this was going to be a huge battle. Robert Tree Payne becomes the sixth signer of the Declaration of Independence. For this week, I want to cover one document that Robert Tree Payne wrote, which I think is so essential for the basic principles that we often outline in with Washington's farewell address, and really just a lot of the values that really underpin this nation and the birth of the United States. This document is a letter that Payne wrote in response to another set of letters. I'll give you a little bit of backstory, and I hope that some of the elements that Payne brings up can help you and to understand what he was thinking, what a lot of the founders were thinking at that time. This letter was written in 1775, and it's in response to a series of letters that it was so hard to pronounce when I first saw it, and I hope I got this right, the letters were called the Massachusettensis. That sounds like a tongue twister there. I wonder if the, the author kind of thought about how terrible it was to pronounce it. Anyway, this series appeared in the Massachusetts Gazette from December 12, 1774 to April 3rd, 1775. Now, I, I wish that I could just pull out some money to be like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And it sounds like, oh, it's very pro-Massachusetts. Well, yes, pro-Massachusetts, uh, but not the pro-John Adams or the Samuel Adams or all those people. It was actually the pro loyalists in Massachusetts. The writer wasn't known at the time, but his name eventually was revealed to be one of Daniel Leonard. What's interesting is that Leonard was actually Robert Tree Payne's longtime friend, and Leonard eventually became a loyalist refugee. And this is this has got to be it's got to be a very, very difficult time, right? I mean, you, you've got a friend who is very much sympathetic to the Loyalist cause, and you yourself, you're skeptical of a lot of the claims that he's making about the role of government. But nonetheless, this letter, which I won't go through the entire thing, it's quite long, but I'm going to cover some of those main points from that letter, just to give you an idea of what Payne is saying in response to this pro-loyalist series, which essentially was just reiterating a lot of what the loyalists were thinking, what their justification was for things like the Stamp Act, for the Townsend Acts, and just really the way that the British were treating the colonies. Now, there is some kind of precedent to the basis of these arguments that Payne is making. One in particular really stems from the Boston Massacre trial that I just mentioned earlier. Payne was not really arguing so much about the shootings, and so it's not like a you know homicide investigation sort of thing. 
Payne was more arguing about something called the quartering of soldiers. It stems from a, a piece of legislation called the Quartering Act, which was a law that the British passed, which said that basically if you're a British soldier and you want to stay in someone's house, you can do that. That was part of the law. And you can probably imagine how annoying uh, these British soldiers were, especially the ones who had a very big appetite. The colonists were just fed up with this intrusion of privacy. Not to mention that probably a lot of these tenants, you, know, you probably give them one stars if, if you were to give them a rating. Uh, it was just just awful, awful experiences. And this really was the basis of something we have called the Third Amendment. The Third Amendment, which is probably the most irrelevant amendment in a lot of ways on the practical side of things, does ban and the quartering of soldiers. And that's how we get... And we get that idea from us from people like Robert Tree Payne. But Payne really goes into this crux of what the loyalists were arguing and why he thinks that it's just it's just bad reasoning or maybe no reasoning whatsoever and filled with lies and deception. Well, the first takeaway I got is that there's a part where he addresses this series we're going to call them the Le- the Leonard letters just because the the name I, I just it's such a hard name to pronounce and again once again it's a tongue twister that Mr. Leonard didn't really see coming anyway the Leonard letters really claimed that the columnist press you know the papers were kind of really were trying to restrict his opinions or his positions uh, well but pain was like uh, no, because everyone up and down the loyalist line is saying the same thing. And so it doesn't matter if you know, the whatever gazette, you know, it doesn't want to publish your your little letters. Uh, it The fact of the matter is all, all the loyalists are saying the same thing. You just keep saying, you keep repeating the, these arguments. You say them over and over and over again. Um, and to put it all into one set of letters and add some more lies and deception uh, is not really going to cut it here. But anyway, that's that's what, that's one takeaway that Payne really addresses, which is this idea that, oh, you know, the positions are not well known or understood. Well, it is opinion as a no. We all understand. It's probably you are not understanding if he's talking to the loyalists. Uh, the second takeaway that you read from this letter is he makes the argument and they pro- provides the evidence that the the colonies that were ones that really gave a lot for the French and Indian War. Now remember, this, this whole cause of this whole commotion, the whole idea was that the colonies had to pay their fair share to cover expenses. Well, the, the Leonard letters were essentially saying that Look, they the colonies, they benefited so much. Why are they complaining? They shouldn't be complaining. If we st- we tell them pay up, they they should pay up. They should do they should do their duty. What Payne is saying is like, hold on a second. It's not like it's not like the British came over and we just sat back, you know, at, at Martha's Vineyard uh, or in DC or down in the Carolinas and we'd all just kick back with our lemonade with maybe with our Samuel Adams beer and we're just relaxing and watching the fight. That's not what happened. You know, his whole idea was that 
yes, the colonies did benefit, but you're not. But the British are not taking account the amount of money resources that they poured in, and also the economic damage too. Because you know, it's not like okay, well, all trade just just kept going. Well, uh, not not when the French are start intervening. Certainly not when you got British soldiers running everywhere and the British French soldiers running everywhere and just disrupting supply lines and all that. It, it, there was no uh, pain was always like there's no real consideration from the British side that there were these economic consequences to the colonies. It wasn't just a free ride. And I do think that this is a very good argument because, uh, you know, I, 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 it, it doesn't just go to the whole idea of representation about. In levying taxes and all the rest, which is a very, very key tenement of this whole letter, which I'll get to in just a second. But it's really the fact that you know, the the British were constantly arguing that the the colonies were just a bunch of lazy people who didn't want to pay. Well, Payne is saying that that's not what we're saying, and that and, and there's so many, and he believes that there's so many lies that misrepresent the intentions. And it just it just really damaged the British credibility in so many ways. Anyway, that's that's one point that Payne made about how much the colonies did have to go through to spend all this money, get all to get into all this debt. Thirdly, Payne notes that the Leonard letter said that the reason why the Stamp Act, which ultimately got repealed, the reason why that went away, and the reason why we have all these commotions. It's because there were just a bunch of evil people, you know, gathered around who made up all this nonsense about the Stamp Act, blasted it in 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 ridiculous ways, and that's how it just galvanized a bunch of people. It was kind of it was very condescending, to put it that way. To put it mildly, the Leonard letters were just very condescending and literally, literally calling these people evil. Like I'm not even joking here. And <laughs> You know, you Payne, Payne looks at this and he said, okay, first of all, people are not going to support things that destroy their livelihoods. <laughs> you know, he, he basically was, say, he was saying that, look, the reason why the Stamp Act was defeated, we don't have people hate it, is because every single person was being decimated by something like this. You know, it, it's not, it kind of goes a bit to the point number two, which is the economic damage. You know, a lot of people lost a lot of business and had to go through a lot uh, during the French and Indian War. And so the fact that the Leonard letters would say, you should support the Stamp Act because it's a great thing to support your your mother country and all the rest. And Bain is just like, but the, the, the tax is horrible. You know, pe- you know why people don't like this tax is because the tax is killing them. It's literally killing their finances. It's almost like they they don't they isn't like the loyalists for at least in Payne's mind. It's almost like they don't understand just how unpopular the Stamp Act is. They maybe a lot of people in the loyalist camp kind of thought, oh, this is just a way for you know like a little child to rebel and not do as he or she is told. Um, and Payne kind of makes that argument, saying, no, 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 this is. This is not about not paying taxes or anything. This is about us just not liking bad ideas, which should be a universal value in itself. But but the second argument he tries to make is that 
the, the and this is really what fuels this discontent is that f- there's just been so many times whether it's Mr. Payne at the provincial assembly or John Adams out there or Samuel Adams out there or just about anybody out there they they keep telling the loyalists all these concerns that they have and instead of instead of bringing them into the camp of okay let's let's have a discussion about these taxes what Payne is, is saying is that oftentimes the British just ignore them or that they don't listen or that they they try to clamp down on this dissent and they they say that the colonists don't don't cooperate well the fact of the matter is there were actually people like Payne who did try to negotiate they were the people like Samuel Adams and look Samuel Adams can have a bit of a reputation as someone who can be just like a very big activist a very wild guy even he was trying to negotiate even John Adams and so this this argument now really starts to come together of saying there's been so many times when the British could have had that that those opportunities to discuss the law to make changes if necessary and to find a way to stop the, you know the disputes but they they chose not to and Payne and many others argue that this is why they're in this situation is because they believe one side has been doing all the let's sit at the table and the British come in and they just destroy the table and they walk out and then the college is like, well, what else are you going to, what else are you, you going to want us to do? So there's such a very a compilation of a number of different quotes, the way Payne describes some of these, these loyalists, it's, it, it's very, very creative. I'm not going to lie. And it's, I think a very good representation in a lot of ways. Um, he's, <laughs> Here's one paragraph I'd like to read to, to all of you. He writes, it's about in the middle of the letter, says, quote, The repeal of Stamp Act restored order and peace, saving the bickerings of a few who were disappointed by the repeal of the Stamp Act and their adherence and the, the declaratory act was made. It was hoped to be, but for form's sake, and that nothing would take place in consequence of it. But alas, the plan and determination of taxing and new regulating America was so deeply rooted in the hearts of some restless, short-sighted politicians in Britain and some greedy seekers' tools and dependence in America to be suffered long to sleep very soon came over an act imposing duties on paper, glass, and tea, and by this time, the eyes of America were opened and a commercial opposition of non-importation took place. This quote really sums up what Payne is trying to portray in his emotions. Essentially calling out the people he believes that are greedy. And what a this is obviously very, very, very insulting for all these loyalists for him to write something like this. But he really says that people are sick and tired of this nonsense. And, they, and they're just like, you know what? People have their eyes opened. I, I really love this imagery of the eyes of America were opened. People see what is happening. They don't like it. And so it's like, well, what is the next step? And so often the, the, the ball is in reverse court, but for some reason you hit the ball over the net and then they hit it out of bounds. And then they're like, oh, we're, we're not playing this game. 
What, one quick story I'd like to share about Robert Trepain before we get into a bit of our reflection phase is that he was eventually he eventually took on a lot of positions. He helped form, form the Massachusetts State Constitution. Uh, he was the uh, Speaker of the Massachusetts House, represented since 1777. Uh, so after his time in the Continental Congress, which ended in December 1776, he did go back to Massachusetts. Um, he later was served as Massachusetts Attorney General from 1777 to 1790, so quite a bit, of, quite a long time. And there's one case that I found is so interesting. This might shock you here. It shocked me when I first read about it. There was a case in the in 1781, and there was a man named Quack Walker. Quack is Q U O C K. I've never seen that name before, but anyway, Quack Walker. Um, is a slave in Massachusetts, born in 1753, and he had a wealthy landowner who owned him named James Caldwell. He bought his family, and Caldwell said that Walker would be free at age 25. But uh, when Walker was 10 years old, Caldwell actually passed away. And so what happens is that Caldwell's widow remarried a guy named Nathaniel Jennison. And they told, they told him that he had freedom at the age of 21. But Mr. Jennison changed his mind. He said, nope, I'm not letting you go anymore. And Walker ran away in 1781. Unfortunately, Jennison found Walker and he brutally beat him. I I can't even imagine what that's like. You know, we 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 hear so much, obviously, about the horrors of slavery. It's it's a real conversation we have to have in this country about the history of slavery. Do so in an honest way, um, and and certainly in this case, it was just a terrible episode. And this ultimately went into uh, lawsuits. And guess who was Massachusetts Attorney General? Robert T. Payne. What is so interesting is that Walker sued Jennison for his freedom. He said, you know, you promised that I, would, that I would be free at age 21. He even argued that the Bible and the Massachusetts State Constitution, the way it was written, prohibited slavery, which is a huge, huge deal, a huge, huge perspective to make at the time. Attorney General Payne, who was staunchly anti-slavery, in part because of his religious upbringing and his knowledge, decided to sue Jennison for assault and battery, which is a huge, huge move, especially since clearly slavery was still very far from being abolished. Walker won his case in 1781, and although Jennison won his case, he lost on the appeal. And the case actually went to the Supreme Court. And the Chief Justice William Cushing, at that time it was called the Supreme Judicial Court, uh, Chief Justice William Cushing just really, really put out something that was not popular then, but something that would ultimately be realized 
within several decades and for decades later. He argued that nowhere in Massachusetts did it expressly say that Christians could hold Africans in perpetual servitude. He ultimately stated that slavery was for the benefit of trade and wealth. That was a very, very big moment for the early, just the seedlings of the anti-slavery movement and the abolitionist movement. Payne was staunchly anti-slavery, as I mentioned earlier. He actually helped co-found the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society, which is actually still around. It's a small organization, but nonetheless, it really represents the fact that he was a man who didn't care about the opinion polls. He didn't think about you know, what people were going to compromise on, on slavery. He was just like, no, I this is my position, and I'm going to stand for it. And while Payne would ultimately serve in a lot of political positions later on, uh, he his health was becoming a problem. Um, his hearing wasn't good. His sight wasn't good. On May 11th, 1814, Robert Tree Payne passed away at the age of 83 in Boston. A man who really served his country in some of the biggest capacities anyone could ever imagine. From the Boston Massacre trials to the Continental Congress signing the Declaration of Independence and ultimately serving as Massachusetts Attorney General, the Massachusetts Speaker of the House. Truly a remarkable career for someone who had all these various, various different ideas that would help shape what the United States would ultimately look like. To wrap up our episode today, I'd like to leave with three brief takeaways. The first is that the power of knowledge of law is one of the best tools we can use in our civics. I don't think we need to be lawyers or constitutional scholars necessarily, although these people should be the experts and the people we should best trust when it comes to their knowledge of the law. But I believe as the way that Payne expressed himself and the way that he wrote these letters, he had to communicate to a broad audience and he was able to use the law as a basis and then describe the law in ways that ordinary people can understand. And I do think that we really need to bring that back into our civics today. You know, it's not about a gotcha game. It's I don't, I don't think it should be a contest on who can write the best uh, essay on the Constitution, uh, unless I guess you're getting something out of it, like scholarship money maybe. But I think in the grand scheme of civics and of positive change, we need to relook at the way we convey laws so that people can understand, relate, and see what the arguments are for or against an issue. I think Robert Payne really does a fantastic job of communicating these ideas and not to mention the use of imagery to describe the laws, to give examples, to describe what the nature of the arguments are, this is really a very persuasive way to sway public opinion and to make one's arguments and stance absolutely clear 1,000%. Next, 
Every signer of the Declaration, or really every founding father, was revolutionary in their own ways, including on issues like civil rights. Robert Tree Payne was clearly anti-slavery. He often advocated for those views whenever he could. And he really, he didn't care about what the opinion polls are saying or how much money he could save if he were to be on the pro-slavery stance. He didn't want to anticipate, I'm sure, you know, a civil war, but he, he truly believed that there needed to be some kind of will to make that first move. And perhaps by him making that move to sue Jenison in that case I just mentioned earlier, that case might have been really, really unpopular across a lot of people in that time. But Robert Tree Payne decided to do it anyway. My guess is that it probably was one of those small acts that he thought he could do to advance this idea that America could emerge out of a slavery nation into one that could guarantee more freedoms and opportunities for people, regardless of where people came from, as long as they embodied the values that we hold so dear in our federal republic and in our democracy. We cannot let go of that vision to expand and grow the ideals that we stand for. Too often, people paint the founding fathers with a broad brush. They say that they all kind of think similarly. They have a lot of similarities, for sure, on key issues, but it's not accurate to say that Robert Tree Payne was someone who had the same views on slavery as Thomas Jefferson. It's just not true at all. And I hope that his story and the story of many of the other signers that we're going to cover in this series have an opportunity to present their case and present their side of how they embody these values of the Declaration of Independence and of Washington's principles so that we can have a better, an honest reflection of what the Founding Fathers contributed to the fabric of the United States and the foundations for a nation that would improve on so many of the things that were happening in the 1700s. Lastly, always make sure that you seize the moral high ground, exhaust all available options, even if you lose those fierce battles. This is very much more of a reference to Payne's loss in the trials during or after the Boston Massacre. Payne could have just said, oh gosh, this is, this is the worst decision ever. And we got to, you know, put in, put together our pitchforks and our torches. We got to go after these guys. He, he could have said something like that, but he decided to remain that composure. Not only that, he was able to make allies with John Adams. Now, it's not really something that just happened randomly. You know, they were, I mean, they certainly were in the same arena when it comes to the signing of the Declaration, but it really takes two to tango. It takes both men to come to the census and realize that they have a much bigger battle ahead of them. And Payne, instead of catering towards what Probably a lot of Bostonians were thinking, which was, we got to fight. He might have known, or at least had some kind of idea, that 
fighting was going to be inevitable. But he didn't let that overcome him. And he didn't use his appearance uh, or his loss to galvanize people into fighting, which ultimately would have hurt a lot of people in the process anyway. This last takeaway is especially important for those who want to institute change. Make sure to explore all the options. Exhaust all the options that you have available before moving on to new ones. Such an important aspect of civics, of making positive change. Um, And Robert Tree Payne really embodies that, both in his profession and really through the lives of the founders as well. It's that gradual transition from fighting for colonial rights eventually to independence. It is not just the end goal, but it's also really the process in which all these founders used to eventually get to that big moment of signing the Declaration of Independence. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode about Robert Tree Payne. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to check out our other Sacred Honor Series episodes at shermantylosky.com. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember to subscribe to our email list. And a day in America always gets better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.